Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. All right, goal achievers, you're here. I'm here. We're all here. This is Hal Elrod. Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. Today is for those of us who are entrepreneurs or who are aspiring to be entrepreneurs. So if you, you know, my audience, our community is made up of about 80% from our surveys, we found about 80% of us identify ourselves as entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. So either we are running a business, we are starting a business, or we aspire to have the freedom of running our own business and that sort of thing. So with that, I bring on guests sometimes that are very entrepreneurial focused. I'm also very sensitive to about 20 to 30% of our audience are a mix of college students and stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads and you know retirees and grandmas and grandpas and moms, you know, just the whole gamut. And so if you have no interest in entrepreneurship, today's episode might not be for you. However, I would imagine that the brilliant gentleman I am going to introduce you to, I kind of have no doubt that you can't not get value from our conversation today. So who I am bringing on today, Nathan Latka, dropped out of college. He launched a software company, sold said company for $10.5 million, I believe, launched the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, which hit 10 million downloads. He got a book deal, and now he's focused on helping founders and entrepreneurs get what they want. That's the short version. And if I go in a little more depth, it was 19 years old when Nathan dropped out of college to found a software company. He had $119 in his bank account. All right, just let that sink in. 19 years old, 119 bucks in his bank account, five years later from zero or 119 to $10.5 million is what his company was valued at. And uh, I know Nathan doesn't consider himself to be exceptionally brilliant. He just says that he realized something that few people know. And here it is. You don't need lots of money or an original idea to, as Nathan says, get really rich. And now he makes more than $100,000 in passive income every single month while also running his own private equity firm and hosting the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, which has more than, again, 10 million downloads. And uh, his new book that just came out is called How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, The Four Rules You Must Break to Get Rich. And in today's episode, we are going to dive into those four rules. I'm going to suck them out of Nathan. I'm going to make <laughs> him share all of them with us. And then hopefully you'll learn so much that you'll go, man, I still want to buy the book to, uh, to get even more. So Nathan Latka, my friend, welcome. Hal, thank you for having me on. And I have to tell you, you mentioned college students. I mean, this book is basically 36 like screenshots of weird ways I figured out how to make some money because I realized my college architecture degree was not going to get me very far. And so I love that you've got a percentage of your audience that are college students. That's awesome, man. That's really great. Yes, which means they're still figuring out if they're going to be entrepreneurs or, right, or architects or, or somewhere in between. So Nathan, who are you? Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, here's the caveat. I don't cringe, but I always pull back a little bit when people introduce me, uh, you know, we're doing all the, the press for the book because we mentioned all the numbers you bring up, which are great, you know, 100,000 in passive and 10.5 million, blah, blah, blah. I just want to underscore, you know, we don't put that in kind of the bio and stuff for me to brag. I guess 
What I would say is since I dropped out of school, call it eight, nine years ago to today, when I'm 29 today, I've read so many business books and how you're in the, in the book world as well. So I know you read a lot. And there's a lot of books that are written by really smart kind of professor-like academic folks, right? Where they study a lot, but they don't do themselves. Mine is extremely opposite. I am very unacademic. I, I haven't really thought of good frameworks to put my stuff around. And the publisher, uh, which is Random uh, Portfolio Random House in my case, uh, was a little frustrated by that. But I told them, listen, I want to put screenshots and email templates. And on page six, you see my tax returns from the company you mentioned when I was 21. We hit... Uh, 960,000 bucks in sales that year. And I bring up those numbers again, because I want people to understand that this book is not one in theory, but those documents are actually in the thing. And there are documents in the book that back up all those numbers. And I hope that helps people go, Hey, this is maybe I can learn a nugget or two from this guy. That's awesome. And I'm a very visual learner. So I love the idea that you've got and your book is on order right now. I have not yet read it. So, but I, but I love that I'm look, looking forward to seeing your tax returns. <laughs> I'm looking forward <laughs> to, uh, to seeing it all, man. That's great. So when you were 19, you were in, so it's, you and I had a similar story, right? At 19, I dropped out of college to pursue direct sales. Now the, uh, I didn't get, I wasn't valued at $10.5 million five years later, but, but I, I went on right that similar journey of realizing that uh, we could kind of take control of our destiny or reliant on someone else to employ us. Right. But we could kind of be in charge of what we created and the value that we added to the world. Give me a little bit of background on when you were 19, what was your plan? Like, I, I, you know, I'm guessing, I don't know, was the plan start a software company or how did that come about? No, the plan was definitely all in on architecture. I mean, I, I loved Lincoln Logs and Connects as a little guy when I was growing up. I'd go in my basement for hours and build like roller coasters with Connects and stuff. And I want to be architect. And then I remember, I think it was 2009 or 2010, when I was sitting there at Virginia Tech uh, in Southwest Virginia, they mixed the architecture classes so that freshmen sit with seniors. And there were seniors that over here talking, you know, late at night when we were playing all nighters for projects, saying like they couldn't get a job. And how this was 09, albeit, right? So nobody was building in 09. So nobody needed engineers or architects, but they couldn't get a job. And I forget where it was ranked, but I believe, I mean, tech was ranked number one many years when I was in, actually in the program. So I was going, wow, if people are graduating from the number one architecture program in the country and not getting jobs, why on earth would I put myself through five years of this, potentially have debt? and potentially have no job at the end of it. It didn't sound like a good path to success. And so I said, I got to figure out something to sell. Sounds like you did the same thing. Now, were you Cutco Knives or one of those kinds yeah, of companies? that's right. Cutco Knives, yeah. You were Cutco. <laughs> I bet you sold a lot of knives. I did. I sold a few. I did, yeah. <laughs> so my version of the Cutco Knife uh, were Facebook fan pages. In fact, on page 34 in the book, you see a screenshot. October 5th, 2010, 11.23 p.m. I got my first order, the PayPal receipt that came in. I was selling Facebook fan page customization at $700 a piece. Oh, wow. And that was the first sale. And the way I got that sale was a woman named Audra Foran who runs a mechanic shop. And she had a fan page with the word executive in it, basically wanted to look very professional. And I cold called her from her Facebook page after I searched in Facebook for the word executive. <laughs> and I just went down the list and I said, Hey, Audra, you don't know me, but you have executive in your fan page. And my first question to get her to stay on the call was, are you truly an executive? Right. So like some people that turns off, some people go, well, yeah, I'm an executive. Mm -hmm. And eventually I basically over a long, you know, 20, 30 sales call got them to say, well, yes, I need your executive Facebook fan page. I'm an executive. Right. And so that was the first sale. And then, you know, it was all from there. I pre-sold about a hundred of those um, at 700 bucks a piece. So I had a nice cash cushion in the bank and yeah, tell me yeah. how much 400 a piece. Uh, 700 a piece. So about 700 a piece. For, so that was the cost to hire you to customize their fan page. You got it. Okay. Yep. 
one-time fee. Okay. And uh, my thinking there, how, and a lot of people will say, Nathan, this is like not ethical, but I'll let you go and your audience be the judge. There's a lot of people in life that study, 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 study stuff. They teach themselves stuff and then figure out if they can sell it to the market or if the market values it. What I did is I wanted to sell the idea, actually collect the cash and then tell everyone, hey guys, I need six months to deliver this. If I can't deliver it, I'll refund you. Well, in that six months, that gives me a buffer to see if I can sell it and then also to learn it if I get enough sales where I actually want to build it for everyone instead of refund everybody. And so because I got 70000 in pre-sales, I said, yes, it's worth me to take the time to take a few online courses to learn what's called Facebook markup language, which is what I needed to know to actually build these pages. And sure enough, everyone was happy. I delivered 100 of custom Facebook fan pages. I kept all the money, but I could have. If I didn't get enough pre-sales, how I could have returned everyone's money and I would not have lost all the time studying FBML. And I think that pre-sale aspect is a really important thing of starting your own side hustle today. No, I love that idea. My business partner and I, kind of a similar thing where we, in general, we just always announce things and uh, we announce them before we know how to do it. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, like, for example, my first live event that I ever ran in 2014, I think, 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we announced it. I sold ticket. What I had never put on a live event, but I announced the date. And it basically, once the date was announced, right, it was, okay, I now have to figure out how to put on a live event by this date. Because what part did you give yourself? All these people, right? And so we sold, I sold 200 tickets to a live event. And I ended up bringing in my business partner, John Berghoff, um, you know, who was, had done these events around the world already. And uh, it turned out great. But no, I love that idea. I think that putting yourself on the hook, I think there's value in that for sure. How, what buffer did you give yourself? But like when you pre-sold them and you said, hey, the event's going to be six months from now or two months from now or a year from now. There was no buffer. There was no plan B. That was just, I have to figure out how to put on an event. And, and the thing is, is, you know, for me, there's a slight difference in that, right? You had to learn a new skill. I had essentially learned new skills, but for the most part, I was a keynote speaker. So I thought, well, as long as I rent the hotel room and I show up there and I've got enough content for two and a half days, like I can't really fail. But oh, so you uh, yeah. put a day of the conference like on the checkout page when you pre-sold. You just left it to be, be like ambiguous. Oh, no, no, I, I did. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I did. We announced today. Yeah. So that was what I was asking is a lot of people, especially when they want to launch conferences, is like, what buffer do you give yourself? So if you launch today and you're testing in the, in the announcement how many tickets you're going to drive, do you say on the, on the sale page, hey, it's going to be two months from now or six months from now or a year from now? How much buffer do you build yourself to, quote, figure it out? Oh, got it. I, yeah. I mean, I think it depends on you know, the endeavor. But for me, it was like six months. I think it gave me six wow. months to figure it out. That's great. Sorry, I was curious about that. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, great question. Great question. So the first business was selling Facebook pages customizing fan pages. How long did you do that for? Well, a lot of bumps along the way. I'll start off quickly answering your question and fill in details where you want. We sold the company in 2016, but it wasn't like an amazing story. And I'll tell you why. On page 243 in the book, you see a what's called an LOI. It's essentially the first step of going down the road to selling your company. And this was an LOI to me. And I'm reading about halfway down. It says it's part 1B. Nathan, the purchase price will be up to 6.5 million and will be paid in the following manner. Now, this was sent to me on October 20th, 2011. I'm 29 today, so you can do the math. I was 21, and I'm sitting looking at a $6.5 million acquisition offer and how I turned it down, uh, which was the biggest mistake I ever made. I underestimated the power of momentum. You know, when you get an acquisition offer like that at that age, no matter what age you are, you have to kind of have your own barometer. You take that deal, even if you think you're building a $100 million company, because the momentum from that exit, the story, the life story you're building, is way more valuable than the actual dollar figure of the LOI. The idea to say I had an exit at 21 was way more powerful, but I walked away from it. And then revenues slowly dropped over time uh, to the point where on page six, you see my tax return two years later, revenues had dropped to about a million dollars a year. I ended up actually flash selling the company for about 1.6 million bucks, which isn't that impressive because I raised 2 million or two and a half million. 
So I essentially shut the company down, gave investors back about 70, 80 cents on the dollar. But the way I built wealth while doing that, pre-raising capital, is I was essentially controlling my own paycheck as the CEO. And that's actually truly how I built wealth in that company, besides all the learning. I mean, I learned a ton over that four or five years. And Nathan, you're kind of a Doogie Hauser of business. You're a little bit of a Doogie Hauser. I have no idea how what that is. <laughs> you don't know? Oh, is that before your time? I was, show- 80, I was 89. Dude, the, the show Doogie Hauser was about a uh, teenager who became a doctor like at age 13 or 14 or 12. Or <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he was this like little prodigy. And, uh, so yeah, That's was, funny. Doogie Hauser. I like that. That's funny. You know you're old when you start referencing shit and stuff and uh, people <laughs> don't, don't know. My wife's six years younger than me, so I get that a little bit with her. But that's funny. Yeah. So it wasn't a it wasn't a massive win, but you know, I got I, we eventually sold it. and I learned a bunch, and then that's when I jumped in and, and launched the podcast in 2015. Um, and that's a whole other story. All right. So I want to make sure I'm tracking here. The Facebook fan page customization that was the company that sold service and product that you were offered the 6.1 million for, or was this the software company that was the next company? I don't know if I missed something. Yeah. So 6.5 million bucks in the transition was, um, I was selling one off pages at 700 bucks a piece. Yeah. I quickly realized I was very lazy and didn't want to actually code every page manually myself. Okay. So I created the entrepreneurial at Virginia tech specifically to find a technical co-founder. So on the first meeting I said, here's my PayPal bank account. I have 70 grand in pre-sales. The first engineer to raise their hand will get 40% of the company. And we're going to build a platform that allows people to drag and drop their own pages together. Like Weebly or Wix or Squarespace today for websites. We oh, built wow. that platform for Facebook apps. Okay. And so that's how I found my technical co-founder. So my point in saying that is I went from a services business, uh, selling like 700 bucks a piece, one off. And I had to you know, make new sales every month. You were doing the work. Reve- yeah, to a recurring revenue platform where people pay me between 30 and 300 bucks a month. Right to use the tool themselves, and we had really helped unit economics. You know, churn was under five percent per month. Lifetime value of customers was anywhere between twenty and forty months. And then again, our pools range between thirty bucks a month to three hundred dollars a month. What was the software called? It's called Lejeure, and then it was called Heyo.com. H E Y O. In fact, it's still up today. The company we sold it to is making a lot of money from it. Really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Which so I like, by the way. I pride myself on that. Oh, I say that again. You pride yourself on what? I just like the fact that you were able to sell your baby and the baby didn't get killed, right? Yeah, like, yeah, no, I mean, that's my fear of, you know, some people talk about like, you should build Miracle Morning so that you can walk away and be with your family. And I'm like, ah, it's so, you know, it's your baby. It's so hard. Like, I don't, I don't want, <laughs> it's, it's, tricky. It's, it's a part, it's like my left arm, right? Like getting rid of my left arm. But that, yeah, that's neat to be able to see that your, your child, right? It's like you gave it up for adoption and it, you know, but it's thriving and it's, it's in a better home now because you weren't ready or whatever, right? Yep. So that was, you sold the company for 1 million. You got the offer for 6.1, sold it for one. And that was in 2015? Yeah, I got the offer for 6.5 in 2011. Revenues continued to decline uh, to about a million bucks in sales a couple years after that. And then we ended up selling it for about 1.6 million total in 2015. And that was a loss because you had borrowed 2 million to it, get it. it. Well, thankfully it wasn't debt. It was actual equity. But yes, basically, look, it was better than going to zero. Most investors expect to get like nothing back or they expect it to be a billion dollar company. So it was a nice surprise to get some money back. But yeah, effectively, it was not a win in the venture community. So what was the journey to the $100,000 a month in passive income from your $1 million sale of your software company to $100,000 in passive income? Yeah. So when I was building a software company, I mentioned I was able to generate wealth for myself before we raised capital because I was paying myself a paycheck, right? So one of the things I did is I kept my expenses like very, very low. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't think about in business. It's actually easier to decrease, I think, your expenses than it is to try and figure out how to make new sales. And so you should always start with decreasing your expenses before you figure out how to go make new sales, in my opinion. Some people argue the other. That might be my biggest takeaway from this. I I spend way too freely. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, but like if you if you're confident on like the returns, you like you should do it. It's just that's how I operate. I like the game of figuring out how to decrease expenses that most people think are fixed. Yeah. So yeah, I kept my expenses, and here's an example of that, right? On page 154 in the book, you will see how I was living in a $3,000 a month apartment in Blacksburg. It was literally the nicest apartment in Blacksburg above the Lyric Theater downtown. I was my college town. And I rented out a small corner of it to one of my friends who desperately needed a spot for three grand a month. So I was essentially living free right through college, renting out a small corner of my thing. And by the way, like, you know, I broke some rules here, right? I didn't actually own the place. Like I had no jurisdiction to actually rent out a corner, but I just kind of did it anyway. And if something happened, you'd figure it out. So like my rule on kind of pushing the rules and pushing the limit in that way is if, if you're not lying and you're not hurting anybody, you can do it. Yeah. That's generally, that's, generally, that's like, that's my, in case you guys are listening going, Oh, I wonder if I like this guy or if he's a little too crazy for me. That's <laughs> my, that is my guidebook. I'm not allowed to hurt anyone and I can't lie to anybody. I like it. Any other rules, break them. And so anyways, my, the building the passive income, I was reinvesting all the money I was saving uh, during this period. So you see on page 144 is a picture of the first six-bedroom, four-bath duplex that I bought when I was 21 when I, for about $215,000. And uh, the rental income and expenses on that, it was cash deposit from, from day one. So it was, I mean, it was making, call it $12,000, $13,000 annually back then. Today, that's a little bit higher. And so I, I have a lot of income now coming from real estate. I've borrowed about one or two properties per year since then. All college towns, cash flows are good. No luxury properties, but all cash flow positive. Okay. And so that was nice. And then I did some things like that, right? That it was our true passive income, right? Then when I sold the company in 2015 or 20, you know, in that range, I then launched my podcast, The Top Entrepreneurs in 2015. And how you're probably seeing this with your show. I was shocked with just general consumers' willingness and kind of aggression towards podcast consumption. Uh, people wanted it. The numbers that I saw instantly were fairly staggering. And so I started doing more and more of them. And I, I struggled to find my way, but eventually I landed on a daily 15-minute show where I interview B2B, so business-to-business -business software entrepreneurs. And I hit them very, very aggressively. So I asked questions like, what was your company worth last time it was valued? What do you pay yourself? How much revenue does the company do? How many customers do you have? What equity do you give your employees? And so because of that, I, of all podcasters, I believe I'm probably the most that has received the most cease and desist letters because you do the interview and then the board hears the interview and the board sends you a cease and desist, but the CEO loves you because he respects how hard you hit them, him or her <laughs> on the show. The weirdest mechanics, but that encapsulates my podcast in a nutshell. Got it. Yeah, that makes okay. That makes sense. And um, this was the start. So I was gonna say that's the start to the passive income stuff. I can go deeper there if you want. Let's do this. Why don't you weave it through? But you know, you mentioned breaking the rules earlier. That you've got kind of two. Your moral compass, right? In businesses, don't hurt anyone, don't lie to anyone, right? And then yep. anywhere else, you can kind of break the rules. And I think that most founders, most entrepreneurs, right, have broken a lot of rules within the context of of a guiding moral compass. So I love that you shared that. So I'd love to do this. Your book is about breaking four golden rules of what you call the old guard, right? It's not your grandfather's advice. This is you know kind of outside the box. So I'd love to dive into these four rules that you talk about in the book breaking and, and just teach those to our audience over the next uh, 10 minutes? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So the, the first question I asked myself, like as I reflected on all my stories of kind of, of kind of building wealth and like just to put a cap on the story we're just discussing, you know, my first podcast sponsorship that came in, I put on page 45 in the book and it was a $180,000 sponsorship where they were on for 12 months. It was a year paid up front, one per month. I made more in that one deal for my podcast than I did in five years 
right? From my equity building, Heyo. And so that was the start to really making my podcast a machine for passive income. And so as I was having all these kind of different successes in kind of business and life and building passive income, I said, why aren't more people doing this? And I started looking around. Once people, Helen, you see this in politics a lot. We won't, I'm not going to get political here, but it's a good example where when people get power, right? They climb the ladder of success. They have a natural incentive to obfuscate or complicate that ladder remove a few rungs. They don't want other people climbing the same ladder to compete with them and take their wealth and power. So the best way to do that is to set up a system where you essentially brainwash the masses with rules that you try and get them to believe that you hope will prevent them from competing with your wealth and success and your power. And so what I did is I crafted this book around four rules that that audience, the wealthy, the powerful has sold to the mainstream, call it mainstream America, mainstream world, that you have to realize are wrong and break quickly to build success. And so the first thing, and you're getting, um, I'll go rule by rule here and hopefully give examples and go deep where you want me to. But the first thing is everyone says, you can't copy your competitors. Don't copy your competitors, right? And what I say is you have to copy your competitors quickly, aggressively, effectively, and then add your own twist on the end to make it your own. And the reason I bring this up is, look, you see people like Facebook literally ripping off in Instagram, Snapchat's UI right? Stories is a Snapchat idea. Facebook ripped it off. You see people copying that are very wealthy and powerful all the time. And they don't even try and cover it up. It's an exact replica, right? And so for us starting a company, if you go and you're walking down, you know, a stay-at-home mom is walking down her street tomorrow morning and stop by the local soap shop and you see a soap there that you really like, but you think it needs one twist to make it the best, you should start your own soap company. Build the exact same soap, right? And then add that twist that you think would make it better. And you have now your soap company. There is nothing wrong with that. And how I think what a lot of people do is they struggle with that idea because they see it and they go, oh, I don't want to copy my friend Jack who runs the soap shop. So I'm not going to do my own idea ever. Right. Yeah. So copy your competitors. That's rule number one. I love that. And, and I will say, I, was, I don't know that I was thinking that when I was going into it, but when I wrote The Miracle Morning, right, I didn't invent waking up early. <laughs> right? But, but I, I just gave this authentic, organic from my own experience and, and created a framework, which also was my wife's idea. Like, thank God, because I and my brain doesn't work around frameworks either. And uh, right. And then the Miracle Morning has become this global hit with you know millions of copies sold and millions of lives changed. And again, it wasn't taking some new idea that didn't exist. It was taking an idea that did exist that I felt compelled to really emphasize for people to, to realize that, hey, waking up early isn't just like a thing that you might consider that could maybe sort of help you, but there's a zillion other options. No, how you start your day is arguably the single most important decision that you make. And if you want to upgrade it in the area of your life, you have to upgrade how you start your day so you can put yourself in a peak physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual state to crush your day, right? So anyway, so I love what you said there. And for people, it's like, yeah, don't sit there looking at a blank page going, what should I do? Pay attention to everything around you and look at what's working and then go, oh, how can I put a spin on something that adds value to my life so that I can share it in my own unique voice in a way that would be valuable to the marketplace? So I love that. Yes. Give yourself permission to do that. So that's rule number one. The second rule that kind of wealthy and powerful have sold us that most of us believe that you must break to build wealth is focusing on one thing. By the way, you and I share a mutual friend in Jay uh, and Gary. Hey, with the one I, was about to, I was about to say, oh, wait, my well, Jay. Yeah. Hey, no, by the way, <laughs> I debate. I did, we, you know, and him and I had breakfast the other day there in Austin. I mean, oh, that's we, great. You know, he's obviously hopefully recovering nicely from back surgery. But like we chat and I say, I say, Jay, like, what do you mean here? And he's like, no, like, you're right. You're right. And we find common ground. But the point here is this. 
a lot of people, if we were driving and about to go over a bridge together, let's say all your listeners and you and I were in a car going over a bridge and there was a big sign on the bridge that said, hey, just so you know, if the winds ever hit 20 miles per hour, this bridge has a single point of failure and might collapse. Well, if it was a little breezy that day, we might second guess driving over that bridge, right? Yeah. So engineers, when they build a bridge, they build like eight or nine points of failure into that thing. We're meaning all, like all eight or nine things have to go wrong at the same time for anything to actually fall, break, or fail. So with that in mind, why do most people build their life around a single focus, a single paycheck, single job, right? A single one thing. This becomes your biggest liability. And so, and by the way, we were sold this very early on starting in college where you're forced to like pick a major when you're like a freshman, right? Before you even like get to the school, it's ridiculous. So people should not focus on one thing. You should always be doing multiple things launching an announcement that you don't know how to execute yet, see if you drive sales. And then if the sales come in, figure out how to put on that live event in six months. You want to be doing more than one thing to de-risk your life. So it's kind of like, it's kind of throwing the SHIT at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of thing? Yes. That, I mean, that's a good example. That's, you know, for me, when I look at all the different things I'm doing, whether it's real estate or my podcast, or I'm now doing a data play based off my podcast or investing in SaaS companies. Yeah. You want to throw stuff against the wall. And what's going to happen is you're going to see two trends. Some things just turn you on. You're going to do them anyway, whether they stick or not. You're just going to do them because you love them. Yeah. The second, things are going to stick because you have a unique experience already in that space. How you have a unique, you know, you have a unique program around helping people have a great morning. So any kind of morning-ish products, right? Whether it's a book or a physical product, you're going to naturally kind of align with because you, you see yourself as a distribution channel for that product already. So you have a natural advantage, right? The trick yeah. is that you, you want to not focus on one thing, maybe even find a beachhead and then build things around that, but don't do just one thing and have a single point of failure. Yeah, I'm with you. And I would attribute that or, or like my connection to that. And I, I've spoken on this more and more and more over the last few years, which is the importance of setting yourself up with multiple streams of income. And it has a bad rap, like just the idea, oh, you know, multiple streams of income, blah, blah, blah. You know, like there, there's, I think there's like a negative rap for that. But I learned, especially when I had cancer, you know, we had money coming in from not just the book, but the book in 34 different languages. That's 34 streams of income, right? And then we have, I have 13 books. So then there's those books and then there's those books in Kindle and audio, right? And then my speaking. And then, so the, the point is having, you know, where like, and especially in the economy when it crashes, which the next crash is, you know, it's coming, it's inevitable, right? We go through cycles, but the idea that if you're reliant on a single source of income, then you are, yeah, you're, it's like that bridge, right? It's very it's like scary. One thing falls, you're done, you're trouble. What do you do? Right. And yeah, so no, I, I love that. I love not just focusing on one, but having more and one, it can be one at a time, right? But keep, keep building, keep throwing more thing, more kindling on the fire, keep creating more opportunities because you never know. I didn't know Miracle Morning was going to be the thing. And that wasn't the only thing. It's not like that was the only thing I, I hinged everything on. I had launched a, a program called Your Best Life Coaching and me and my buddy launched a, a program called Global Empowerment Coaching. And we, you know, so there's like all these different things. And then Oh, Miracle Morning is the one that stuck. I didn't know it was. Yeah. The, I couldn't have predict. You can't predict it. But I love what you're saying because the more things you create, the more opportunities that you you put yourself in front of, the more opportunity you have to find that one thing that is going to win for you. Yeah, and you set yourself up to get lucky, right? I find my velocity. Yep. I can kind of do an air quotes like six 
things, projects kind of at once, right? Whether it's like a live event planning or launching a new podcast series or writing another book or whatever, buying a new piece of real estate. But my velocity is typically like launch one new thing per month and like delete one thing per month, nice. right? So I always kind of end up with five-ish at one time. That's just me though. Everyone else will be different. That's, so, a, br- that's a brilliant strategy, right? Delete the one that's working, you know, the lowest hanging or the one that's working the least, right? Yep. And, then, and then add a new one, right? Oh, I yep. love that. I love that. You strategy. have to delete though. Most people are better at adding than deleting. That's yep. part of the issue here is you have to delete. Like, and then you're overcommitted if you keep adding, right? Yes, you have to delete. So don't focus on one thing, do multiple things. Uh, That's number two. Uh, Number three and four quickly. The first is a lot of people like, listen, corporate America spends trillions of dollars on on ad budgets annually. Why do they do that? Well, Rolex puts a watch on Federer at Wimbledon because he wants all the viewers or they want all the viewers to crave that watch. They want to save up, you know, paycheck after paycheck to save 30 grand to get the new Rolex. That's the goal. Or you guys listening right now might have goals to go on like a big vacation or like finally buy that house or that car or that dress or that suit, right? What I argue, and this is hard, right? But systems are more important than goals, right? Goals are one time, systems are forever. And so what I like to do is instead of focusing on, again, kind of the golden egg, the Rolex watch, I focus on the goose. Am I giving it enough energy every morning? Is it getting enough sleep every night? Am I giving it the right kinds of foods? Because if you keep the goose healthy, you increase its kind of egg-making velocity. And before you know it, that system you've invested in, you've kind of layer stacked over time, will be pumping out Rolex watches at the rate of not like one a year as you're setting up, but like one a day or one a week or one a month even. So you want to focus on the goose, not the golden egg. And you are the goose, right? We are the goose, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, but you actually don't want to be the goose, right? Unless you are your brand. You want it to be the business that's the goose? Exactly. Literally, the business systems you're stacking, right? And you see a bit of this on page 29 in the book where I break down my podcast publishing process, including my costs and how I took it from like 300 bucks an episode to produce and 29 bucks an episode to produce. And those systems, that is the golden goose you have to nurture. Always be thinking like how to make those systems stronger. That is the goose. Awesome. All right, we got time for the last one, and then I'm going to go take my kids to see the movie Aladdin. So hit us hard, Nathan. Good. Thank God. Thank God you didn't mess up both your eyes in basketball. You can actually see the screen, right? That'll be a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last one here is don't go after the hot trend, right? So right now, there's a lot of people going after, say, I'm going to make stuff cannabis or cannabis companies, or maybe in your local neighborhood, all the moms or dads or or high school graduates are all talking about one thing, right? You don't want to build that thing. What you want to do is sell the pickaxe to the gold miner. And the story here is in 1853, Mr. Levi resisted the urge to mine for gold in California because he looked around and saw people bleeding and sweating and dying in the mines and instead realized everyone was wearing jeans. So I'm going to sell jeans to the gold miners. And today, Levi's is still around. Gold mining in California, right, to that extent is not right? So the pickaxe is around, the gold miners are not, or that wealth is not. So you want to resist selling to the hot trend, focus on what the hot trend relies on and sell that thing. Give me an example. Give me a, you gave it the Levi example, but if today, if somebody's listening and like, what, what's a relevant, I'm not fully grasping. Yeah. Here's a great example. Flowhub. Flowhub is an accounting company for cannabis companies. Why? Because cannabis companies right now, it's a hot trend, but they can't bank traditional banks because the laws and regulations haven't caught up. So Flowhub got itself together to essentially be an accounting software for cannabis. They don't have the risk of actually being a cannabis company, right? But they still support cannabis companies to be their accounting firm. If cannabis ever crashes, they can then go into just an accounting firm for anybody, right? A software accounting firm for anybody can keep with like FreshBooks or QuickBooks, right? So that's the idea is you want to build one level under the hot trend. It de-risks the business a bit that way. 
Mm, I like that. I have a buddy who owns a uh, merchant processing company and they just got approved to serve cannabis companies. And he said their business is just exploding, right? Yeah, but yeah. to your point, if the, if the cannabis, if cannabis becomes illegal or it, it, the trend goes away or whatever, he's got a merchant account, com- right? Merchant processing company exactly. that's going to serve any business out there. So PCI compliance already and all that. As another example on the Bitcoin stuff, right? Like instead of going like mm. crazy on Bitcoin, like build Coinbase, Right, which is a way to track Bitcoin transactions, and Coinbase is now worth over a billion dollars. So there's all kinds of examples like this. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Those are those are the rules. Copy your competitors. Don't focus on one thing. You know, build uh, again systems, not goals, and then sell pickaxes to gold miners. I love it. Counterintuitive thinking that makes all the common sense in the world. Nathan, like I said, you're my little Doogie Hauser buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, these are common sense. You're gonna have to stuff. go to YouTube and type in Doogie Hauser and <laughs> have to look it up. I'm gonna do that right watch, now. Watch, watch a trailer or something. Yeah, you oh. nailed it, man. You know these are these are common practice, uh, or sorry, common sense, but but not common practice. So I'm, I'm glad I was able to get them all in the book, and I appreciate you you making time to have me on. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, you and I need to get some more time here in Austin. Uh, grab a dinner or a drink or a lunch or a something something we should do something together everything um, except i will not play basketball with you i hear you're very aggressive yeah right dude i yeah no i'm i'm the uh, nail uh, my, my buddy john broman is the hammer and if you're listening and wondering what that reference is by the way go to my social media i got me and my buddy john playing basketball the other day and uh, john broman <laughs> or we headbutted and my eye just started it cut open above my eyebrow leaking blood six stitches later like my eyes all swollen shut so it's I'm, like a big cut by the way this is not like a baby cut it's a big cut on his eyebrow and my 40th birthday is in uh, like three days and it's funny as soon as this is just how i respond to adversity I, I my eyes bleeding down my face my wife my kids everyone's freaking out and i'm going you guys this is great I, i'm a fan of ufc and i never really knew what it was like to get you know, have your face cut open and bleeding, but I watch it when I see fighters and I feel more connected to one of my favorite sports. <laughs> the always empathetic Hal Elrod, everybody. That's right, you guys. The book is How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, The Four Rules You Must Break to Get Rich by my friend Nathan Latka. Nathan, you are, uh, you're a good man. Goal achievers, I love you. I appreciate you very much. I am going to go and I'm going to take my wife and our two kids to go see the new Aladdin movie. I heard it's great. So let me know what you think uh, in the comments below. And I love you. And I will talk to you all next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 